Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, I can promise you are in the right place. The buzz today... I promise not to sing it, but I'll read it. Let's get together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trivia question. What 1960s Disney film featured this tune? I'm going to ask my panelists in a little while and see if they already know. But that's part of our theme today. So let's talk business. What does it really mean for you to have a connected business? Get it? Let's get together connected. Uh I knew you would. Analysts estimate that by 2020, and you all know that's one of my favorite future years. I don't know what I'm going to do when we get there. I'll have to pick a new one. By the time we get to 2020, which is less than five years away, social networks will be connecting 2.5 billion people. That's right. Billion. The number of connected devices will total 75 billion, and the volume of global business trade between connected businesses will reach a whopping 65 trillion. We left the billion and we moved into the trillion at this point. So as we move to true hyperconnectivity, as we like to call it, in our digital economy, questions arise for your company, wherever you are in the world, whatever your footprint is, whatever your industry is. How can you turn these exciting challenges, and indeed they are challenges, and your business networks into sustainable, profitable opportunities that have a human connection? Come on, you've all been hearing about robots taking over jobs and people getting rid of the idea that we have to work? What are we going to do for fulfillment? Well, in the meantime, while the world is deciding if that's going to happen, we're going to be talking about digital economy, connected businesses, and the human connection. I have a great panel, three experts, thought leaders. They've all been on with me on various shows in the past, and we're putting them together for this new mashup today. I'll just tell you who they are, and then we'll start. Dennis DeGregor, who is the worldwide group executive for CX Services at HP, is with us today. Frank Diana, Principal Business Evolution at TCS, is with us. And Drew Hoffler, Senior Director, Solutions Marketing, Ariba Network, and Financial Solutions. Great panel. Let's kick off this part of the show with a quote given to me by Dennis DeGregor. It's actually a DeGregor original. And he says, the digital CX revolution is dead. Ooh, long live digital humanism. Dennis DeGregor, welcome back. Please explain. How are you? Bonnie, I'm fantastic. Great to be back with you again on Game Changers. Thank you very much. So talk to me. Digital humanism, is that an oxymoron? Are people going to buy that? Talk to me, Dennis. Well, here, here's what we mean by digital humanism, and I actually like the term digital empathy better, which is an oxymoron, Ooh, actually. Yes. So we'll talk, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But what we mean by digital empathy or digital humanism is that as the digital CX revolution emerged earlier this century, the prevailing wisdom was that digital channels, social me- media, mobility – would take over the world of customer experience management. And this has proven not to be the case because what's actually occurring in, a, in our market, global market, is that products and services, as they become increasingly complex, are requiring an actually higher degree of human touch to get the service and marketing effectiveness that we need. So smart businesses, smart leaders, are actually realizing that it's people that are at the center of this digital revolution, and we have to provide them new advanced technologies 
that allow them to engage in this empathetic customer experience that drives net promoter scores, that drives revenue, upsell, cross-sell, and loyalty metrics. Interesting. Empathy in digital. I'm still having a problem with that, Dennis. We're going to have to dive into that a little more. By the way, do you remember the song that went, Let's Get Together, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah? Do you remember it? Kind of. Kind of. All right, let's just leave it at that. Let's see if anybody else can identify it. Uh, I'll use one one word as a clue, twins. That's all I'm going to say. Let's move on. Dennis, thank you. Great introduction. I'm still working on that digital empathy. I have to tweet that in a second. Frank Diana, you're up. Frank Diana at TCS, thanks for joining us. And Frank has sent us the following quote from Dion Hinchcliffe, who is the CSO, that's a new one for me, Chief Strategy Officer at Adjuvi, and he is considered an industry expert on all kinds kinds of topics, digital workplace, web 2.0, social business, you name it. And here is the quote, the networked organization of the future knows that the lion's share of value exists outside its walls. It looks to capture that value and bring it inside the walls. Frank, Diana, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Thank you. Delighted. And thank, we, we contacted you late last week. We had an open spot. And shout out to Brad Borkin at SAP for saying, hey, Frank, Diana would be perfect for this. And here you are. So tell me, how did you pick a quote from Mr. Hinchcliffe for this today? Well, as you said, he's uh, really a renowned expert in all things social and uh, enterprise to all those kinds of things. And given the connectivity focus of this panel discussion, I thought it was apropos. Um, and a couple of things come to mind as I, as I read that quote. First and foremost is this, this shift, if you will, to uh, an ecosystem kind of mentality. The, the way value is created and captured kind of shifts, and more and more stakeholders are involved in that value creation and capture. And so that obviously creates more complexity around customer experience, as Dennis was talking about customer experience. Uh, and then interesting things like the rise of the crowd, uh, the people and their passions and how they play a role in value creation and capture and how companies exploit the crowd to do so. And then last but not least, as three billion more people enter the Internet world by 2020 as a collective knowledge and wisdom that uh, most companies need to really tap into if they're going to succeed in the future. And so all those things talk about the networked organization and how more and more value is created outside the company. Interesting. Thank you very much, Frank, and welcome back. And let me introduce our third panelist. Let's see what kind of a quote he brought to us today. It's Drew Hoffler at Ariba, and Drew has sent me a quote from Sir Isaac Newton. By the way, Newton called himself a natural philosopher, and he's widely recognized as one of the most influential scientists of all time. Very interesting. Here's the quote. We build too many walls and not enough bridges. Drew Hoffler, welcome back. How are you? I'm well, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Talk to me, Sir Isaac Newton. He'd be thrilled to be here on a web-based radio show. He'd say, web what? Based yeah. what? Radio what? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I figure I, I like to make myself sound smart by leaning on the classics. So uh, you can't go wrong with uh, Sir Isaac Newton. But I think, uh, actually, I, I'm, I, I like this quote even more now that I've heard Frank's quote uh, from a more modern source. But I think we're kind of saying the same thing, where... You know the reason the reason I chose this is in a digital economy, right? What matters are connections. What what matters more and more are the idea of of, of connecting and building bridges across to um, partners, uh, prospects, customers that might have or that typically were in the past more disconnected. You know, in the in the previous era that we 
that we lived in prior to, you know, the Internet and now the digital economy, right? it was all about silos. It's all about walls of buildings and information and data that existed in COBOL mainframes behind brick walls and internal units that uh, didn't talk to each other because they were very siloed in their processes or, you know, only had periodic cloak and dagger uh, touch bases with their customers or partners and suppliers and, and whatnot because they were disconnected systemically, right? But in the digital economy, what we find is that where value is really created is when you build bridges between these parties and allow the flow of information, maybe not fully freely, but in a, in a controlled but much more open manner, uh, you're sharing information and finding value uh, where Others now see things from a different perspective and have visibility into critical information. So I come at it from a B2B perspective. It's not quite the crowdsourcing uh, that Frank was talking about, but in a B2B perspective, it's, it, it is very similar. When you build these bridges, you're able to gain value from other parties who typically had not had a voice into a particular process or issue or idea. So right now, it's, it's really about finding where to build those bridges, where they're most valuable, and, and, uh, and, and start increasing that knowledge flow. Thank you, Drew. I'm finally remembering my days as a mainframe COBOL programmer now that you brought it up. When the computer room was literally a warehouse, when you walked in it and you watched, I, I know I'm dating myself here, huge, huge machines with lights blinking and flashing, right. and they had to pick up the tiles on the floor to get to the wiring with a little thing that looked like, uh, well, it looked like something you remove a tile with. It was a magnetic clamp, and they pick up up the tiles and go in and work on yeah when, when i had to stand on a step stool to put the disc pack into the disc oh drive oh really throwback time oh this is far back with sir isaac newton that, that's going even further back I think. well it's the 1970s <laughs> give me a break i don't know if anybody frank might remember those days frank do you remember the days of the disc packs that were so big you had to stand on a stool to put them in the in the uh, deck unfortunately i do <laughs> and key punching. Oh, my God. I'm giving away way too much here. So I have my trivia question. Since Dennis wasn't sure, Frank or Drew, do you remember Let's Get Together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember the movie, the name, and the actress? I do, but I'm partial to the, uh, I'm partial to the newer version of the movie. There is a newer version of the movie? Yeah, with um, the, uh, so we're talking about the parent trap, I believe. Yes, uh, but yes, the newer we are. Version of the, movie, the newer version of the movie with, um, and now excuse me, it's escaping my mind, but the train wreck of an actress right now. Lindsay uh, Lohan. <laughs> yeah, Lindsay Lohan, thank you. Oh, no, how could they do that? Just, oh, my goodness. Yes, 1986, I'm looking it up. No, that was the original 1986, was Haley Mills, Tom Skerritt, uh, Bridget Andrews, I'm looking, I don't know which one this is. Let's see, made for... Oh, this was back in the 90s. Yeah, yeah the, 61 was the original one, but there actually was a Parent Trap 2 in 1986, which still had Haley Mills. Yeah, Haley Mills no, as, as the, the twins. Yeah. There's a newer no. one with Lindsay Lohan when she was about 13 or 11 or something like that. Here it is. It's been 17 yeah. years since Lindsay Lohan's The Parent Trap. Here's an article <laughs> in July, July 29, 2015. Yes, yes, yes. I don't want to go there. No, we'll just pretend you didn't say that, Drew. Thank you very much. <laughs> so let's, let's dial back to safe territory here. Dennis DeGregor, let's talk about digital empathy in terms of empathy. Uh, what are you drinking today? What's in your cup? Because you're on Coffee Break with Game Changers. So what is your favorite drink today or what are you planning after the show, Dennis? 
It's in the cup right now. It is Trader Joe's Super Green Drink with a double espresso shot. Whoa, whoa. Sounds very powerful. Are you pumped? I'm pumped. Okay. I want to do a shout-out to Dean Pappas. He goes by D-E-A-N-P-A-P-P-A-S underscore the numeral two on Twitter. Dean, you're such an active tweeter whenever Frank Diana shows up here. Uh, I think that's the link here. Dean, why don't you tweet to us at hashtag SAP Radio what you're drinking? We'd like to know a little bit more about you. He's a very active commentator here at hashtag SAP Radio. Thank Dennis. Very interesting. Frank Diana, what are you drinking? Uh, I'd, I'd like to have what Dennis is drinking. <laughs> But what I'm drinking is actually boring hot water with some lemon. Well, what's boring about that? You must have a good reason. Is it warm? Is it cold? Is it tall? Is it short? Does it have ice? Is it, uh, does it have any coloring to it? Is it in a fancy cup? Do you have a straw? Talk to me. It's in a Villanova University mug <laughs> where my daughter went to school. Uh, but no, it's pretty boring. It's just plain water with lemon because I'm having a little bit of a sore throat this morning. I knew there was a medical reason. Okay, you're treating it well. Thank you very much. Drew Hoffler, just back from vacation. What are you drinking today? Well, you know, it's a little bit of a throwback to my vacation. I, uh, today is a is a more than one pot of coffee day. And uh, when I was on vacation, I was actually canoeing in the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. And so weight is an issue, and you're bringing everything with you. And so I brought Starbucks Via instant coffee packets, which are actually pretty good. And so I found myself uh, with a surplus of them, and today I need more than just my pot of coffee, so I have a couple of those uh, making that extra supplemental uh, cup of coffee this morning. And I find that while they are good uh, for an instant coffee, they're better when you're out on a canoe, but still. It's good. Ah, okay. Very, very interesting. And I discovered that uh, the box of K-Cups from Martinson's I just bought, it's decaf, but it's very dark the way I like it, didn't work in my Keurig, and I discovered that all you have to do is do something really old-fashioned. Insert the tip of a sharp knife in the hole on the bottom and make it a tiny bit bigger so that the Keurig didn't back up and the water didn't drip out one drip at a time with the red light on for 10 minutes and you still didn't get a cup of coffee. So the old-fashioned way, make the hole a little bigger and it worked just fine. But we do have a message here from Dean Pappas. Dean says, Frank, I hope you're ready for a fan message here. He says, love listening to Frank Diana, but going with even more boring ice water, Dean has 10 miles to run after work. So he's hydrating. Thank you very much, Dean Pappas. We appreciate that. Guess what? My panel's working very, very hard. We're talking about business networks in the digital economy. Are you ready for digital humanism, digital empathy, whatever you want to call it? These are new terms to me, and I bet they are for most of our listeners around the world. Speaking today with a great panel, we have Dennis DeGregor at HP, Frank Diana at TCS, and Drew Hoffler at Ariba, and I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I plan to be after the break. So we're going to say to our engineer today, Justin, out. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. 
By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime, anywhere, and on any device. www.sap.com When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Welcome back. We're here today with Dennis DeGregor at HP, Frank Diana at TCS, and Drew Hoffler at Ariba. Our topic is business networks in the digital economy, ready for digital humanism, or as we learned in the opening segment, we could swap in the term digital empathy. So we're going to start the roundtable, 30 minutes nonstop with Dennis DeGregor. And Dennis, I'm just going to read a little bit from your notes, and let's take it from there. You say, digital humanism is the intersection of personal service and self-service technologies, and you add that companies and brands that rely on an omni-channel operating model to service and sell to consumers are in the crosshairs of this intersection. A lot of implications. Dennis, why don't you start us off, please? If you think about digital empathy, the entire concept, and how it relates not only to textbook theory, but to strategy and operating models in large brand corporations, what is actually happening today is digital empathy as a, as a concept, is an oxymoron, as, as you pointed out, Bonnie. Mm-hmm. However, machines cannot deliver empathy. It's the humans that are empowered by the technologies that deliver empathy. Let me give you a great example. Uh, I was in the command center of a global automaker, uh, their, their global command center, and a, a bunch of twit, tweets hit the network and Facebook mm-hmm. posts, and there was all of a sudden this huge surge in, in Internet traffic and posts regarding the brand. And it was actually about a recall. And there was a, a rumor going ar- around the Internet that this car would suddenly back up uh, unexpectedly. And there was this surge in Internet traffic that we could actually see in the command center of, of concerned parents. Is my child at risk? Is this car going to back up and hurt someone in my family? Now, this is a very real concern. And the, tech, the intersection of technologies, the advanced technologies that are allowing us to engage customers in digital empathy are contextual and meaning-based technologies that take very large data sets flowing through the Internet and distill them down to the 2% of the data that matter to the consumer. So, for example, all these posts that are coming through, this call center has technology that, that not only showed the posts, coming through the social media command center, but organized the posts into contextual and meaning-based buckets and generated business rules on how these humans should interact with this customer. And when you combine those types of contextual and meaning-based technologies with speech and uh, text analytics, you can actually detect 
based on the adverbs, the adjectives, the words the consumer is using, their level of concern, their level of frustration. And this is a huge breakthrough for the area of service and one-to-one marketing because you can actually anticipate and proactively address uh, a customer's concern and therefore engage in digital empathy with the customer, which actually drives net promoter scores, which drives upsell and cross-sell ratios, which allows better first contact resolution, which we all know is a primary driver of customer loyalty. So this is a great breakthrough, and I've, I've been doing this for a long time, and this is the most exciting time I've seen in the business. Wow. Wow. Very, very interesting. Are we having shades of AI here, artificial intelligence, Dennis? Well, I think the foundational technologies for contextual and meaning-based mm-hmm. data and advanced speech and text analytics is artificial intelligence. So the AI thing that we've all been talking about for 30 years is starting to come to fruition, and leading brands are actually deploying these technologies to drive customer loyalty metrics and revenue metrics more efficiently. So that's an exciting time. Very exciting. Frank, Diana, jump in here, please. Talk to us. Uh, uh, sure. So uh, the AI conversation is a good one. Uh, this is really a narrow application of artificial intelligence, uh, and, and we've seen the IBM Watson scenarios, et cetera. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a really good example of, uh, of some of the use cases, if you will, that that's applied to. And over time, artificial intelligence expands to more general purposes. But at this, at this point in history, we're, we're at a narrow phase of the application of AI, and I think that's a great, great use case that Dennis described. Um, and, and really, in, in terms of the empathy side of this, you know, context is critical, and so enabling context at the point of interaction is, is as Dennis described, very critical. Uh, and also personalization, obviously, the ability to understand more about the end consumer and personalized experience gets to be much more effective. And all those things, in my mind, are critical, but I still see a lot of companies interested in Dennis's thoughts here, but I still see a lot of companies that are kind of using an isolated approach to some of these technologies and tools as opposed to a holistic view, you know, somewhat of a system of engagement, if you will, that enables all this, but again, holistically, not in a piecemeal fashion. Interesting. Drew Hoffler, join us. Thoughts? Yeah, I love the um, I, I love the example uh, that was given. That was just fascinating. I, I think um, I think in this era, right, big data um, and all of the information there that's probably can be typified by uh, Twitter and uh, you know the fact that so much comes through so quickly and it quickly moves off the screen and all this information is probably the the epitomization of TMI, right? Too much information, but inside of that is critical information that's necessary to have. And this is where I think the digital economy and things around AI and and the idea of context-relevant information and um, that you can build into the systems that that this information moves through to then grab out automatically. You pretty much have to have that to grab out automatically that which is important because there simply is just too much uh, information moving for, frankly, for humans to, to be able to, uh, you know, discern and capture everything that's necessary to capture. So this, I, that example is just fantastic, and I think that, that that type of idea comes over in the B2B world and business networks where, you know, gigabytes of information moving between partners all the time, and yet there's critical pieces in there that have to be highlighted and grabbed so that humans then can, can interact with it from a human level but only on that which is the most important. So I, I, I just really like that example. 
Thank you. Dennis, I'm going to circle back to you. And before we move on to some notes from Frank, there's something here in your notes that I really want to bring up. I'm not sure anybody mentioned it yet. You talk about the Internet of Me. Now we have the Internet of Things. We have the Internet, all kinds of Internets. And now we have you say the Internet of Me is the new frontier of innovation. I think that's a loaded sentence. You want to describe that? We'll go around the panel and then we'll move on. Fantastic. You know, the the digital CX paradigm it claims to be uh, customer-centric, but it's really not organized around customer. The digital CX paradigm as it exists today, and this is building on Frank's point, which is actually a great point. Uh, the scenario, the use case I described of the auto manufacturer and AI is representative of a leader, a pioneer in the space. It's not widespread at this point. But the way that companies are using digital marketing technologies today in, in, is in what I would call the push model. They're just using digital to do kind of like the same old marketing paradigm. What's actually happening is if you think about the Internet of me, the Internet is act of things is only one piece of the prevailing paradigm. There's really five pieces to the Internet. There's the Internet of things, which are beacons, sensors, wearables, Apple watches, Google glasses. There's the Internet of people, which are individuals, groups, social networks, etc., there's the Internet of Places, you know, physical and virtual destinations. There's the Internet of Companies, brands, commerce, portals. And there's the Internet of Information, contextual and meaning-based data that we can organize. So these five pieces, in my mind, represent the entirety of the Internet. And the challenge for the future of brand marketing is, and service is to put the consumer in the middle of those five components of the internet and connect those five consumer of uh, those pieces of the internet to the consumer with what I call digital halos meaning what is this customer's fingerprint or digital portrait that they are leaving in the marketplace that we can organize and use to do service and marketing better wow Frank Diana, thoughts? The Internet of me, the Internet of you, the Internet of us? What do you see? <laughs> I really like that. I hadn't heard that mm-hmm. before. I saw it in the notes. I researched it last night just to see what it meant, and I, I, Dennis, I, I like the uh, application there. Um, and clearly, as we all leave our digital footprints, um, as I mentioned before, you know, an ability to get to a me kind of scenario, gets, it's obviously much more, uh, we're able to do that. And in the past, we just weren't able to do that. So great, great point in time to be talking about the Internet of me. Okay, Drew Hoffler, thoughts? Uh, yeah, I agree with that, absolutely. The, um, I, again, I come at it more from a B2B perspective than marketing to a particular league to consumers, but when I look at the B2B process and I think of, you know, things that need to connect uh, from, you know, uh, RFID devices and uh, deliveries of goods and services that can trigger potential financing opportunities um, for uh, you know, for a supplier who needs to, you know, finance when they when they've delivered something uh, somewhere, and then they can finance to get you know more cash flow to build to build their new things, and it's triggered contextually on particular gateways that they go past. But then the information around all of these folks, for example, in that finance example, are the information around their their uh, relationship with their customer and their on time payment ability, and all of these types of things. Their credit ratings that come from third, they come from different parties. Uh, fed into the network, all of this stuff kind of aggregates in the central network hub that can then be tapped into by the party who may be providing the financing so that they can best 
uh, aggregate their risk. So just this concept of, of all of these different sources, these different streams of, of information being tied together contextually to make decisions and make business processes better, I think it's very similar uh, to what Dennis was talking about in the Internet of Me. I would call it the more the Internet of um, the Internet of Business. Uh, not a, not as catchy a title, but from from my perspective, it's a similar concept. Of, and, and I definitely think that that is one that is uh, is growing vastly in importance. Thank you, Dennis. Any wrap up on this Internet of Me discussion we've been having before I move on? I, you know, I think digital halos are really an important part of our future, and uh, all the speakers have touched on this issue of tracking consumer behavior, predicting consumer behavior, anticipating consumer behavior using analytics, and this concept of digital halos connecting the five components of the Internet into a true customer-centric model is the frontier of innovation, and that's what we're, we're pioneering in my team. Thank you very much. Anybody else want to wrap up on that? Halos and Internet of Me and Empathy? I'm ready to move on. Everybody good? Yep. Sounds like everybody's good. Frank Diana, looking at your notes you sent before the show. Next generation experiences. Let's talk a little bit about that. You say excellence in traditional customer experience is foundational but not sufficient. The unbundling phenomenon has changed the expectation of experience. Talk to me. What kind of experience are people expecting now? How much have we given them? How much has the business world given them? And what do we want? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating topic, and I like to talk to it in the context of next generation experiences because we do sort of fixate on sort of a channel mentality, uh, an omni-channel experience. Yet, if you think about it, um, we're seeing sort of the unbundling of offerings and that we've, we've seen as part of a collective in the past. And, and the classified in the newspaper is a great example of that, how the newspaper has been unbundled into a set of services. And, and you optimize that service and the experience it creates in doing so. And so as that plays out, you're just seeing optimal experiences being created in a very niche kind of fashion, but it sets an expectation for the rest of us. And so that, that expectation, if you will, drives the need for different kind of experiences. And if you think about the smart home and you think about the connected car and you can think about emerging connected healthcare scenarios, those are all experiences too, yet multiple stakeholders play in, in creating those experiences. And I just think the complexity associated with that kind of experience will drive companies to focus on a next-generation way of doing that. So, Frank, you talk about next generation. Is that related to experience or related to the next generation, meaning the demographic, the cohort, who's coming next down the pike with money in their pocket, who's going to be the buying public, whether they're consumers, uh, retail, whether they're the B2B buying public, so to speak? Uh, what are we referencing here? Well, I mean, that's part of it, but not, not necessarily what I mean by next generation. So next generation just says that the way we traditionally think about creating customer experience has to change. And all the things we've talked about are obviously elements of how that change manifests itself. But I just think that customer experience gets more complex over time. And if we don't think about it through a different lens, uh, we're going to find that it's no longer cost-effective to deliver the kinds of experiences they're looking for. It's a moving target. And I, I know companies are struggling with the cost foundation of that moving target, trying to keep up with the kinds of experiences that are expected out there. 
Thank you, Frank. A quick quick note here. Kevin Mulcahy is tweeting at handle K-M-U-L-C-A-H-Y. Hello, Kevin. And Dean is going at it. And we've got David Kish. And we've got TCS underscore SAP, the TCS SAP Alliance. But Kevin just sent the following note to us. He said, when is the Internet of me going to really understand me? And I'm, I'm uh, linking this to Frank's comment about next generation experiences. And Kevin adds, and I'm not so sure how much I want to be understood. Frank, you want to take a crack at this before we move around the table? Well, two sides to that, right? Obviously, the the first is the conversation around artificial intelligence and the kinds of techniques we use to truly understand the individual. And we know that the data is there, right? So I think we made the point a couple times that it's getting from from that noise to a signal kind of in a fast, uh, contextual way. So that's obviously the side that says we're going to drown in all this data if we don't find an effective way to understand me. Uh, the other side of that, obviously, is the discussion around privacy and security and all the, the concerns that folks have about just how much information we, we're gathering on people and how it's used, et cetera. So, I mean, there's, there's two sides of that coin, as there always is. Thank you very much. Drew Hoffler, which side of the coin do you want to be on from your B2B hat you're wearing? <laughs> well, I think, you know, this idea of uh, personal experience, I think, is in setting expectations is critical in B2B. I mean, it used to be the fact that there was um, so many uh, – it, it was it – was, it's a very different experience when you walked into, you took the elevator up uh, to your office and you kind of stepped back into into the 80s from uh, the current your current existence. And it used to be that that was okay, but more and more, you know, people are expecting to be able to know, uh, be able to have information at their fingertips, have a have a very connection between the the, the critical aspects they need, just just like they do in their life. And when it comes to knowing, you know, knowing about me in the business context, right? It, it's really you knowing about your customer, and and I think it's knowing about your supplier, it's knowing about your supply chain, it's knowing about what's going on because you, as a business, are not necessarily just uh, you, you, you know you're not just existing in a vacuum. You are the sum of your supply chain. If you think about that, and so there's some very critical aspects in knowing what's going on with your your supply chain, knowing their behavior, knowing their cash flow behavior, so that maybe mm. you can help them out, knowing maybe where they're sourcing and how they're doing it. I mean, there's there's issues that that we have very close to our heart about, um, you know, about uh, slavery in the supply chain and understanding mm-hmm. where your stuff is coming from. So this idea from a B2B perspective, I think, is very critical in knowing uh, what's going on around you beyond just the times where you're actually talking to your partners, but knowing what's going on in their background and knowing how you can not only help, but how you can avoid risk. So. So it's a little different in B2B uh, than in the consumer world, but I think conceptually it is is very similar. Drew, I think we just added a new chair to the table in the C-suite, IMHO, and the title of that person would be the CPO, the chief partner officer, the person in charge of looking at that supply chain. What is company XYZ doing? What kind of ethical policies do they or don't they have? What are they doing in other parts of the world? How are they outsourcing their materials? What's happening wherever sure. they're doing business? It's it's a big job. That's what I was thinking as you were speaking. Dennis DeGregor, got to get you in on this. Thoughts? You know, the consumer privacy issue is going to increase in importance with the emergence of the of the Internet of Me. And the obvious issue here is that brands are going to have to get really good at letting consumers opt in or opt out because the, the, the tweet implies that there's Big Brother watching me, which is a valid concern, and we hear a lot of that in the consumer marketplace. But the reality of the situation is that digital marketers 
who are leading in, in, in the practice are actually not only looking at individuals anymore, they're looking at all your Facebook uh, partners, uh, your Twitter connections, your Instagram connections, and so forth, and they're actually marketing not only to you, but to the people that you're connected to. So this uh, opt-in, opt-out issue is going to increase in importance. The interesting dynamic, though, is that digital natives, 18 to 35, tend to share more and not be as concerned about privacy as boomers and Generation X. So that's, that's an interesting dynamic. But what I would recommend uh, to, the, to the caller is be proactive in opting in and opting out and managing your own privacy because nobody's going to do it for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, did any of you hear the case, by the way, uh, made the news yesterday about a woman whose Facebook postings are being used against her by her husband in a very contentious divorce case? Uh, the contention is that he should get custody because she travels all over the world and she keeps posting pictures of herself against these great monuments and great buildings and saying where she is. And her divorce attorney is coming back and saying, not admissible, just because the child wasn't in the picture with her doesn't mean she left the kids somewhere else. And it's the first time ever that a Facebook chronology, basically, Facebook postings may be admitted as evidence in a divorce trial. So we're talking about about people being unabashed, right? About posting their lives, which is part of what we're talking about. The internet of me, me, me is what I think we need to call it. Uh, where were we? Frank, Diana, you want to wrap up on next generation experiences after hearing what Drew and Dennis had to say? Well, so I think one of the things that underpins a lot of this discussion is that value creation and capture, uh, it will change in the future. It's going to be a multi-stakeholder kind of thing. And that puts pressure on the kinds of experiences that are expected and, and delivering those experiences. So how do you operate in an ecosystem of a number of shareholders and, and be able to deliver the experience? Who owns that experience creation in a world like that, right? I mean, lots of discussions out there about maybe being the broker of customer experience in the context of these bigger ecosystems that are emerging. So it's just an interesting, I, I think it, the next generation piece of this discussion is, is fascinating because of what's happening in a number of different dimensions in the connected uh, world that we live in. Thank you very much. Drew, I'm looking at your notes, some interesting stuff here. We've already talked about scourges like child and slave labor around mm -hmm. the world, and it's not an excuse to say, I didn't know my supply chain dealer was doing that, no longer an excuse. But let's move on to something else in your notes here. Let's talk about balance. You say in a hyper-connected environment, companies can take advantage of the knowledge sharing that is possible with the valid corporate need to share some information on a need-to-know basis only. And then you say, one of the benefits of this connected environment is crowdsourced solutions and unexpected contributions, but one of the downfalls is TMI, too much information. Drew, mm -hmm. how, how do we get to the balance? Is it up to the individual? Is it up to the company? Is it up to an, a chief ethical officer? Do we have a new CEO? In the, I'm, running out of, I'm running out of chairs here. A lot of monogramming going on. Okay, so yeah. talk to me, Drew. What do you think? So I think this is very important in light of the discussion that we just had about, you know, the different generations, the, you know, the digital natives, as they're called, right, who have no problem sharing information and seem to see no value in that, whereas, you know, I won't say which I'm in, Gen X or Boomer, you know, there are, we tend to think more about what we share and be more selective on that. In the business environment, that is far more important. 
I, I think, or maybe it can be argued there, at least from a dollar value impact possibility if too much information is shared. So in a business environment where you're dealing with, uh, you know, intellectual uh, property, you're dealing with certain critical information that shouldn't get out to the street, you're dealing with, you know, certain certain things that are, there's privacy, privacy issues of companies that can have impact to bottom line and, and into their operations. You need to uh, control that. But at the same time, my, you know, my original quote was that we build too many walls and not enough bridges. So while there are mm-hmm. some walls that need to be there, there are a lot of bridges that need, to be, that need to be made. And contributions can come from unexpected areas. For example, one of the things that's near and dear to me uh, in what we do here at Ariba is, is, is cash flow, working capital, connecting procurement and finance and all of these types of things. And typically when we talk about working capital, that's something that the finance side, the treasurer, they're real excited about. They want to do something about that. Procurement, which is a big audience of ours, typically doesn't think about that too terribly much. But I've got examples where uh, on a procurement side, they were connecting to a business network bringing in, uh, bringing in advanced ship notices to know when something was being shipped. Well, that visibility into that piece of it, to when that item was going to be shipped, enabled them actually to start billing their customers sooner. And so they were able to, in procurement, drive down their overall day sales outstanding, which is a big working capital metric. Mm-hmm. So you've got this unexpected contribution where they were able to deliver basically a four-day a four improvement in DSO, which for this large company I'm thinking of, a $12 billion company, adds up to about $130 million of working capital freed up. So that's a huge impact to the bottom line coming from an area in procurement that you would never look to for uh, for improvement on day sales outstanding. So that's one of those things where you have this, you have visibility, you have people who have uh, can see what's going on in processes that are related or not related to them, but that can then have an impact in areas you would never expect were you to maybe map it out yourself uh, and then choose how you were going to impact DSO, but they were able to impact something that was very important to the company. So that type of thing needs to be, those type of visibilities need to be there. But with business networks and the digital economy, there has to be an ability for uh, built-in, if you will, some walls, some firewalls to information. Mm-hmm. And that's... Um, it can't just be the Wild West of Facebook and Twitter when you're talking about a business network. But So there is this balance that has to be struck. And I think we're still finding how to, how to strike that balance more from the standpoint of more restrictions still on than, than off, uh, than, than free information. But it's moving toward the center point where, okay, we're realizing, hey, we can release visibility into, into this type of information so that we can sort of, quote-unquote, crowdsource solutions within our business, but there has to be systemic walls to certain uh, pieces of private information that may be a little different from the, from the private consumer community. Great explanation. Thank you. Dennis DeGregor, do you agree with Drew? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's right on target. This is, this is a topic that, that needs a lot of, of development, and um, great, Drew. Great commentary. Thank you. Dennis, you want to add anything before we go? We're still going around the table. Any thoughts you want to add? You know, I think, I think this whole issue of, of information management is, is a big issue in the digital age. And I'll give you an example just to build on, on some of the things Drew is saying. If you mm-hmm. think about the current state of data warehousing 
and our ability to manage information and protect privacy and do service better and do marketing better, the entire data warehousing industry as we know it is obsolete due to the Internet of Things because the format of the data being collected by digital halos and by big data analytics is a completely different format than the the information systems that exist in most companies today. So what we're actually migrating to is away from what I call the 360-degree view to manage information and privacy and those kinds of things Drew was talking about, but to the 720-degree view, which is, you know, what is the customer's current 360-degree view in our database systems at the company, but what is their 360-degree view in the Internet of Things? in the Internet of me? What are they posting? What are their concerns? Who are their social networks? What are the key uh, words that they're using? Uh, organizing that 360-degree view and putting mm-hmm. it on top of the existing 360 is what I call the 720. And that's where the information management uh, business is migrating to. The 720. Who's going to do all this? Dennis, is this the job of the data scientist? Is this the job of an intern? Who's going to do all this looking into the intersections and, and where all the information's coming from and put it together in a way that makes sense that the business can leverage? Thoughts on that? Whose job is it anyway, as they say? I, I think it's primarily you know, the CMO's job and the job of the executives who run the channels. So they have to work together in, in a steering committee-type environment and put together business requirements, requirements for marketing, requirements for service, requirements for selling, and then give that to IT and let IT go to work and figure out a way to organize their data warehouses in this new model, which is really based in what is called in-memory computing, Mm -hmm. where you can actually conduct customer interactions in real time and not have to worry about the batch operational data stores that we've historically relied on as consumer marketers. Okay. Frank, Diana, thoughts on all of this? A lot going on. Sure, sure is a lot going on. The yeah. things that struck me in uh, the statement that you read was the knowledge-sharing piece in the crowd. Um, mm-hmm. and I do want to come back to something Dennis said as well. But the knowledge-sharing piece to me is critical because it's really we're not talking about information as such anymore. We're talking about the collective intelligence of, of, the, of the crowd or the world, if you will, right? And how do you take that crowd down to a community that could participate in, in your process uh, and then leverage the knowledge that they deliver into that process in a way that creates value. So, for example, you know, we, we've seen companies that have leveraged the crowd and their knowledge to take product development cycles from 300 days down to 29. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal when you think about that. We know examples of crowds that have improved insurance algorithms and dropped millions of dollars to the bottom line for very little cost in the process, right? So, so taking the increasing level of knowledge and intelligence available to a company and leveraging it to create value, I think, is really a critical success factor for companies as they move forward. And the other thing I wanted to re- react to was, you know, digital, although, you know, grew up with a sort of a marketing lens on it, uh, is quickly exploding beyond just marketing. So I'm not sure the CMO being the person focused on this is the right answer because of that, that mm-hmm. breadth of digital implication, right? So what is it, who is it in a company that can get to an information base that impacts everything, not just sales, service, uh, marketing, et cetera? I'm not sure I have an answer, but there's a lot of conversation around digital officers or others that are aligned with the CEO that help drive some of this. Thank you. Drew, what do you think? Who should that person be, or is it a whole new team? 
Yeah, I mean, it really depends on it. Really depends on the process. I think you know, in in a in a business, uh, chief risk officers need to be a part of it. I know typically they're looking at um, at financial risk, but you know, the loss of information into the wrong arena uh, will definitely impact uh, financial risk. Right. <laughs> so, so um, for example, around payment, uh, around payment information, for example, right. So companies to make payments are storing. Uh, you know, getting from, uh, they're storing bank information, they're storing credit card information, and we've seen plenty of opportunities where those have been uh, breached and that information's gotten to the wrong people. And, you know, there's one particular retail company that lost $4 billion in market cap in two hours, right? So it's very mm. important. So the chief risk officer definitely plays a role in that. I think the, um, the, 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 the chief information officer IT needs to play a role in that. But at the same time, they can't have the only role. It needs to be balanced against the business need to push the barriers, you know, where you can uh, to make information available to uh, critical people in the in the business process who might be able to contribute uh, to something there. And so I think it needs to be a partnership between you know, risk IT who actually, you know, flips the switches and, and sets mm. the parameters and whatnot, and the business area who wants to accomplish these great things like driving down, uh, you know, processing days from 300 to 20 or whatever it was. So it's a bit of a balance between those groups. Thank you. You know what? We're almost ready for our crystal ball predictions round, but I just want to do a shout out again to our tweeters. Twitter is literally on fire right now during the show. And I want to say a thank you to Kevin Mulcahy and Dean Pappas. TCS Enterprise Cloud just joined the party here. Uh, let's see. We've got David Kish and uh, Frank Diana. You're talking, you're walking, and you're tweeting at the same time. Very much appreciated. And we have the TCS SAP Alliance as well. But, but I want to read a couple of comments uh, to to just uh, honor our tweeters and any panelists if you have a quick comment just jump in um, Kevin Mulcahy says very point to the point we're talking about TMI he says sharing on the internet is easy just remember there is no delete key good point Kevin and he puts it in the the little carrots on either side with an exclamation point uh, Dean Pappas says the digital natives at 15 age 15 have no clue they are exposed to the world they are still myopic kids uh, let's see Kevin Mulcahy says no one's going to manage your privacy for you is this a business opportunity aha uh-huh. uh, Dean Pappas says Facebook is part of the digital fingerprint in Georgia it is often used in divorce cases Thank you, Dean. I thought the one I cited from the news was the first of its kind. I'll have to tell CBS they were wrong last night. Uh, let's see. Frank Diana comments on slavery in the supply chain. Very, very interesting. Uh, let's see. There was one more here, something about being naked. Oh, Dean Pappas has a good one. He says, do we manage digital behavior or find a way to flow with it? Sun Tzu, who is a 500 BC Chinese warrior philosopher, and I'm never sure whether he was a warrior or philosopher first or second. Sun Tzu says, work with the momentum. And I think we're just, and Dean says, will IT work on 720 or will business leaders engage cognitive computing as a workforce multiplier like they do with SAS? There we go. And Dean says, uh, we started using computers in business to crunch repeatable steps. GAP, G-A-A-P, anybody remember that? Knowledge work is next, and we'll leave that alone. We are at the point where we've got to go into our crystal ball, so let's move in that direction. Dennis DeGregor, you know I love the year 2020. I tell everybody that, but you may not so much. What do you see in the crystal ball for a future conversation about 
business networks, the digital economy, the Internet of Me. We've got so much to talk about. Digital humanism, digital empathy, and who's going to be running the show as far as managing this information on the B2B side. Dennis, let me give you uh, 60 seconds for predictions. Go ahead. I think that our prediction is that Generation D is going to take over. And what I mean by Generation D are, is the group of influencers. McKinsey has done studies that show that 1% of people in the Internet ecosystem impact 33% of sales transactions. This is a huge phenomena. And my prediction is that Generation D, the, the group of influencers, that can either delight and drive your brand to new levels or detract from your brand through their Internet activities. Managing those relationships and providing influencers the information they need to create positive posts about your brand is a great frontier of innovation for both marketing and service. So I'm going to predict that there's going to be an increasing emphasis on investing capital to uh, create relationships with Generation D influencers. Ah, very, very interesting. That's a new one. I sense a new topic coming up for another Coffee Break show. I will be in touch, Dennis. We've got a lot of new terms here. Frank, Diana, I'll give you 60 seconds for your predictions. I absolutely agree with the Generation D uh, notion and the investment of capital to tap into not just that, but I'd say the relationship ecosystem in general. So the hyper-connectivity that underpins our discussion today uh, will explode in the next five years, right? So by 2020, I mentioned earlier that 3 billion more people are online. Uh, and so when you think about that, and you think about the implications to expectations, to uh, companies and their, and their leverage of this knowledge that I talked about before, I just think you're going to see a lot of emphasis on uh, this next generation of experience that I mentioned and the tapping into collective intelligence. Those two things, I think, are critical in the next five years, and I, I do think you'll see companies focus there. Uh, and last but not least, I think you're going to see a continued evolution of value ecosystems and more emergence of new ones by 2020, and it will continue to blur the boundaries between industries and companies and increase the number of stakeholders involved. Thank you very much, Drew Hoffler. I saved a full 60 seconds for your predictions. Go ahead. <laughs> Great. You yeah, didn't get, I think you didn't get shorted this time. Go ahead. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I think the um, you know, when we see the consumer uh, connectivity and all the things happening in the digital world, the consumer side, it's, it's kind of a, an experimental box uh, from the business to business perspective. Right? Everything kind of comes a little bit later and slower in B two B again because of the risk and, and things that I w- that I was talking about before. But I think what we'll see right in twenty twenty is we're going to see a much more uh, connected environment where partners, third parties, uh, buyers, suppliers employees, everybody is going to be connected to kind of central hubs, uh, business networks, where this information will be more available, where today you kind of have everything happens inside a black box, and then there's one point of connectivity between you and that next black box in the process. I believe that, and then you don't really know what's going on until the very end of the process, what's happening in those other black boxes. I think that's going to start to become more and more opaque and more clear then as uh, information flows between these these boxes where processes are happening in context, uh, connecting you know connecting groups together, and that'll that'll drive things like that'll drive all sorts of things. But you know we're seeing that processes are not siloed anymore; they shouldn't be, but they are really intimately connected in links in value chains, and those links are going to become much more tightly connected. 
Thank you very much. Great predictions. We are at the time when it's time for me to close the show, but I have some shout-outs. Dennis DeGregor, always a pleasure. Shout-out to you and your colleagues at HP. Frank, Diane at CCS, Tiffany and Priya at TCS. Thank you so much, Frank. Always glad to have you, and thanks for jumping in again. Drew Hoffler, welcome back from vacation. Great talking points from all of you. And a shout-out to Brad Borkin for connecting Frank to this show and Justin and the Business Channel team for getting us on the air. And I have my own prediction. My prediction is Dennis, Frank, and Drew will return to Coffee Break in January. I only have two Wednesdays open in January. We're booking that far ahead for Coffee Break. And we're going to talk more about these great topics. So I'll talk to you off air, all three of you, but you are officially invited back for part three of connected businesses in the digital economy. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Thank you for listening. If you're listening live, thank you so much. Thanks to our tweeters. If you think someone you know would enjoy this, this program will be available on an on-demand podcast within about two hours on the business channel at World Talk Radio. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Signing off. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week. 